Well, welcome back, everyone. Greetings. If you're back and it works for you to have your video on, it's nice for me to be able to see people as I speak. And some of you may have bandwidth issues, but if it does work to have your video on, uh, I appreciate that. So, good morning, and good afternoon, and good evening for some. And I've come back, uh, just uh, last from last week, uh, come back from teaching at Spirit Rock for about one week, and teaching our Metta or Loving Kindness Retreat. And it was uh, very inspiring for me. Uh, both uh, watching people develop over the course of a week, uh, you know, practicing, you know, pretty much all day long for seven days. And then also just my own practice. When I teach, I like to stay in the hall a lot. So for me, I was able to have probably five or six, uh, you know, full meditation sessions in the hall and was practicing a form of metta called uh, Radiating Metta. And uh, it inspired me really to, uh, inspired me really to uh, teach on aspects of Metta practice for uh, today and for next time. And in particular, uh, I wanted to look at a theme which um, is interesting, which is really what's the relationship in our practice of cultivating mindfulness and wisdom on the one hand and kindness and the good heart and what we might even call love on the other. A lot of the teachings, the deep teachings are that at our depths, there is wisdom, and there's also something like love and kindness and warmth. You know, and so we have, uh, you know, we have aspects of the tradition where that's talked about. Um, we sometimes talk about the essence of Buddhist practice as being like a bird that has two wings. One wing is wisdom and one wing is compassion, you know, really representing kindness, love, and we might say the heart qualities. Um, people, sometimes in their books, they suggest that. Jack Kornfield has a book called The Wise Heart, bringing together the quality of wisdom and, you know, care, love, kindness, and so forth. Uh, a teacher in the Tibetan tradition who I studied with, Mingyur Rinpoche, has a book called uh, Joyful Wisdom. Again, it's bringing together more the heart qualities. And we find this in, particularly in some of the uh, Mahayana and Vajrayana Tibetan traditions. Um, 
where there's a sense that the essence, the essence of the teachings are the wisdom teachings, and there sometimes they focus particularly on what's called emptiness and compassion and bringing those together. And, and I also think of how it's different in different languages. I remember talking with uh, Larry Yang, who uh, I co-taught the Meta Retreat at Spirit Rock with for many years. And Larry said for his parents, there was a sense when they said, where is my mind? They hold their hand at their heart. There's a sense we might say of, of heart-mind. And yet we also know that in many ways there's a separation that we can have uh, between our clarity, our clear seeing, our emotions, and our heart. Think of, I would say, there's a deep conditioning in mainstream culture in the West to separate out the mind, the clarity, the wisdom from the heart. You know, and think of what mainstream education is like, right? How much, how much have we learned? Uh, well, I don't know if we've really learned wisdom, but we primarily learn things that are more about information, mental, more knowledge, and so forth. How many of you had education where you were, you were taught how to be more loving? Anyone have that? Maybe a little bit somewhere, but not necessarily much, right? I didn't. How many of you received education where you were taught to be more in touch with emotions? Maybe that's changed in the last 10 or 20 years. I didn't have that, right? So you get the, you get the point that there's often, there's often been a kind of a separation of intelligence, of knowledge from the emotions, a deep split in our culture, which was, you know, set up uh, many hundreds of years ago, sort of the, in the origins of what we call the modern world. You know, and I, I remember reading the French philosopher Pascal, I think in the 17th century, you know, after some of the early philosophers had said the essence is the mind, reason, and so forth, he made the comment, some of you may remember this, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows not. Right? And a lot of the poets over the years in Western culture have really questioned this separation out of knowledge and the emotions. You know, that's been a theme for, for many poets. And so, yet we can also see that something like this split even exists some in Buddhist tradition. Do you find metta among the factors of the Noble Eightfold Path? Many of you know those. I don't find it there. You know, and in the tradition, the emphasis is often on clear seeing and wisdom. And even in the way we teach our retreats, I would say, even though we teach sometimes retreats where we emphasize loving kindness for whole retreat, the main way that we teach uh, mindfulness and developing insight 
we might at best have one period of loving kindness uh, a day. How many can relate to that from your own experience? You know, and so I want to raise the issue of how we integrate our clear seeing, our insight, our wisdom, and our warm heart, our kindness, our love. And I'm going to suggest that it's something that is a challenge both in the kind of conditioning that many of us have received growing up, but it's also a challenge even in the way that Buddhist practice has been developed. How do we, how do we bring these together? So that's what I want to explore uh, today, and I'll explore that also next time, because I, I was inspired to this theme by what I was experiencing, you know, just last week, because in my own practice, I was developing a kind of awareness which had metta infused, actually without, without the phrases, and I'll teach this next time. I'll teach this way of practicing next time that we sometimes call radiating metta or radiating loving-kindness. And it can give a flavor of how awareness gets integrated with loving-kindness, of how, of how they come together. So what is the, what is, first of all, our metta practice? I'll say a little bit generally about the nature of the practice. And then I'll talk about how about this, um, the challenges of connecting it with our wisdom and some pointers maybe to, to how to do that. So metta practice is a way of developing warmth and kindness in some ways, it's a very ancient vocation. We find counterparts in other traditions. In Judaism, I think in Judaism it's said in the Talmud that the highest wisdom is that of kindness. Interesting, right? And you know, in very much in uh, Christianity, very, very central. Uh, you know, the teachings of love, love your enemies, you know, have love being, uh, being central. Um, let's see. How, yeah, and very, you know, very, very clear in Islam also, very central. I can think of, uh, um, I think there's a poem by Rumi where he says something like, Love is the water of life. Drink it down with gusto. <laughs> Something like that. That's one of the Rumi poems. We find other passages in the uh, in the Quran about the centrality, uh, the centrality of love, and it's there for the Buddha. We we are told that when the Buddha was basically just hanging out, he was manifesting metta. He's he basically he didn't. And if you look to the text, it's not quite said. This is saying it a little colloquially. He basically said, you know, my hangout place is loving kindness. When I'm just, you know, nothing to do, I'm just walking down the road. My way of being 
is loving kindness. And he said that the reason that loving kindness is so central to our being is because really the depths of our being involve that quality of loving kindness, we might say of love, that we find talked about in other traditions. It's said that every being, even those who do things that are awful, unskillful, harmful, in their being, at the depths, there's what's called the brightly shining quality of mind and heart, which is identified with loving kindness. It gets covered over. And that's really the core of, the, of all the teachings. We all have an essential nature, sometimes called Buddha nature, that gets covered over. That's really the hopeful, deeply encouraging teaching, right? And so it's a mad, a lot of our practice isn't so much producing something that's not there, but it's uncovering what's already there. In a sense, getting out of the way, learning how to get out of the way. And that's a lot of what we learn in our practice, right? How do I just let myself be in a deeper way? That's really, that's, that's really we could say, the good news, right? The good news is we actually just have to find ways to take off the different coverings. And again, I think of my uh, conversations. I, uh, many of you know I, I go swimming a lot. And uh, in the city of Berkeley in California, a friend of mine named Yasir Chadley, who uh, originally from Morocco, uh, and is a Sufi teacher, I've taught with him, I brought him to this Wednesday gathering a few times. He was the head of lifeguards for the whole city. And so he'd often be there. And when I would go swimming, we would hang out and have spiritual discussions, right? And one of the, one of the discussions I remember, he said that, uh, I think if, if I remember it accurately, it's like there are 70,000 veils that cover our true nature. And uh, one of the ways that that's more uh, a teaching in Islam and that the way of uh, really of uh, practicing, again, we have the counterpart in Buddhist practice, is learning how to uncover what's there, that deep nature. A Tibetan teacher, Garchen Rinpoche, said, love is the only cause of happiness. Its nature is all pervasive like space. Love is the sunlight of the mind. And metta practice is a way of accessing that deep nature. It's done in different ways. The way that we practice with the phrases actually comes from the fifth century from a text called the Vasudhimaga, which was, and it has influenced particularly Burmese tradition which in turn has influenced the way we practice in the U.S. and much of the West. You know, the repetition of phrases. But the Buddha most likely did not teach like this. He taught loving kindness through developing it and then letting it radiate out. He practiced what we would call a radiating metta, 
And there are lines, this is from the Metta Sutta, that bring out that radiating quality. This is from the Buddha, from the, from the basic text on Metta. So, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. How does that sound as a way of being? Radiating kindness, you know, and a way we practice it, and I'll teach it next week, a way we practice it, we get the metta going, maybe with the phrases, and then we gradually let it radiate out. And there's some ways that we can visualize that radiation, and there are ways eventually it just becomes a natural quality coming outward. And it's one of the ways that we actually connect loving kindness and love with awareness and with wisdom through this radiating. That's probably the way that the Buddha taught. It's certainly what appears in the text. Another passage from a text from the Buddha. One abides, having suffused with a mind of loving kindness, one direction of the world, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. And so above, below, around, and everywhere, and all to all is to oneself. One abides suffusing the entire universe with metta. Whoa! One sub- abides suffiding, suffusing the entire universe with metta, with a mind grown great, lofty, boundless, and free from enmity and ill will. I just had the thought, I don't know where this came from. Wouldn't that be a good qualification for a leader of a country? Anyone support that? (laughs) To have radiating metta be your dominant mind state. The world would change, right? Yeah, I mean... And so we practice like that. We practice doing formal meditation. We practice in daily life. You know, uh, we try to bring metta to different activities. You know, we can bring metta to just walking around, bringing the phrases to a person, bringing the radiation to beings. I often walk around and bring a kind of radiating metta to plants and trees and bushes. It's It's very easy to do. And we can bring it to uh, be at a meeting and bring in metta. And we can, you know, one person I worked with has a way of practicing metta, continually asking. This is something you can do. I'm going to invite us to practice loving kindness in the next week. Another way of doing it is asking continually, maybe a few times during the day, what's the kind thing to do right now? I have a conversation with this person. I have a meeting. What's the kind thing to do? Continually, continually asking that. And so this, we practiced in that way, but practice isn't so easy, right? We, what we found in the, in the week-long retreat is that it's not necessarily easy to evoke metta, that issues come up. You know, we may be distracted. How many people had some distraction even this morning in our meditation, right? We get distracted. Our mind goes here and there. 
You know, that's one issue. We can be sleepy or have low energy. We can have other states come up. You know, we can have, uh, sometimes we practice loving kindness and, you know, being judgmental comes up or sadness comes up or other emotions or anger comes up. How many people felt some of that when you were practicing? Other things came up. Yeah. We find that a lot in our retreats. People, if they have unresolved issues, sometimes the unresolved issues come up. You know, and so we often speak of loving kindness practice as being a kind of purification practice that can, that can occur. And so we work with those kind of challenges. As we practice, we develop more stability of mind, more concentration, and we uh, develop more energy, and we, we engage in seeing what stands in the way, you know, of loving kindness, you know, what blocks the heart. You know, a lot of what happens when we practice is either we experience the loving kindness or that which gets in the way of loving kindness, the distraction, the other emotions, and so forth. And as we do that, we touch more the deeper parts of ourselves. And we, we touch more this quality of... Uh, are you hearing a little background in my coming from me? I'm, if you hear a little, do you hear a little, Carlita? Yeah, I'm, I'm having plumbing work done in my house. So hopefully not too many sounds. Haven't been many so far, but I'll try to keep patient with it, develop equanimity, bring loving, radiating metta towards the person doing the work. Okay, you can do that too. Okay, so let's go back to that question of how we connect metta as we're practicing and how do we connect with wisdom? And I'll go back to some of the ways that it doesn't always seem connected. You know that um, actually in the text, the Vasudhimaga, it's actually explicit that loving kindness isn't directly connected with wisdom practices. The repetition of the phrases is taken to be a form of concentration. And that's again been the main way of teaching metta that's been passed on. It's not integrated with the wisdom teaching. It's a separate kind of practice where we develop uh, concentration, you know, and not necessarily directly connected with clear seeing, with awakening. In the Metta Sutta, though, which is more the Buddhist teaching, there, is, there does seem to be a connection. You know, the Buddha says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision. Do you hear that? They're brought together. The pure-hearted one having clarity of vision is freed from attachment to sense desires. So it's really connecting the quality of the heart from, from wisdom. And there are, other, there are other passages where the Buddha really makes a strong connection between loving kindness and insight. You know, there's one story 
where the Buddha is visiting a bunch of monks. And they, uh, he says, you monks are living together so well. You know, how you live together as if you are one. And the head monk says, yes, we have multiple uh, bodies, but our minds and hearts are unified. This has been done through metta. There's a sense of the quality of wisdom coming from that, coming a sense of linking the quality of wisdom, particularly seeing into uh, impermanence, seeing into the roots of suffering, seeing into, uh, seeing into the nature of the self. These all seem to be directly connected with, with metta. Carlita, is that is the sound uh, bothering bothering you? It's not terrible, Donald. Not too bad. No, not too bad. Okay, it's a little probably a little worse for me. Now I was thinking of getting my head headphones or something could be could be a little bit better. Um, okay, practice metta for one minute, and I will get my headphones. Okay, can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Let's see. Are you hearing me now? I'm thinking. Oops. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Okay, very good. Okay, sorry sorry for that. This should be this should be a little bit better. Thanks for your patience. And so what I want to encourage in the next period of time is exploring how to bring together our clear seeing, our mindfulness, our wisdom with the spirit of metta. One way of doing that is doing as we did in the guided practice. It's doing them both in proximity to each other, maybe first mindfulness, then metta, and then inviting the spirit of metta to be there with the mindfulness. That's one way of doing that. Uh, again, the teacher I worked with, Mingya Rinpoche, said that when we um, do two practices in proximity to each other, they mingle, right? So that'd be one way, one way of practicing to, to bring them together. 
Another way I'll introduce next time, which is the radiating metta, where we bring them together. See if there are ways that you can make connections between wisdom and awareness and the kind heart. How do those, how do those get integrated? How do, we, how do we bring emotions together with our thinking, with our clarity? How do we integrate that with the body? How do we bring these together? Uh, the spiritual teacher Ramdas talked about loving awareness. How do we have awareness is more, can be more mental. How do we bring together awareness and love? How do we see how these can be separated and then, and then bring them together? How do we, how do, in other words, how do we integrate these a little bit more? I think it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge, as I mentioned, even in the way that we teach at places like Spirit Rock. The integration isn't fully there, in part by the fact that our loving-kindness practice comes from a part of Buddhist tradition where it was seen as, in a way, uh, not fully integrated with, with um, wisdom, with insight, with mindfulness. And so let me invite you to explore that, but more so, let me invite you to practice metta, both as a formal practice in the next week, and then also uh, bringing it to daily life taking a walk, bring metta to other people. I mentioned that I do metta practice when I go swimming, when I do laps. I think I've mentioned that a few times. One being per lap, right? Uh, when you're at a meeting, bring metta to others. Ask yourself periodically, what's the kind thing to do? Bring metta when you're driving. You know, we can really be uh, creative like that in conversations and so forth. So I think maybe that's enough for now for my own for my own teaching. So let's take uh, let's have a pause. Just th- let's see what resonates with you. Just take a minute or two just to pause, and we can come back with discussion. You know, see if there are any questions or sharing. So let's open it up now. You can either just raise your hand and I can see you, or, or you can um, uh, use the raise hand function. Please, looks like uh, uh, Jane, please. Maybe a little closer to your microphone, if you could. 
Let's see. Uh, yeah, it's a question. In our many of you know, in our in our uh, teaching of metta, we often, like we just did in the one week metta retreat, we have a sequence where we go from the easiest to the difficult, and we uh, uh, we start with where it's easiest. And in the retreat, we actually stay there for almost entirely for the first half of the retreat, and we we build up. You know, we build up the capacity. And then we go to a neutral being. And then we go to a so-called difficult people, which, as you remarked, is not an accurate translation. It's sort of a Western uh, Westernization. The original word in the original language is the enemy, uh, which actually um, I, I've read both... Uh, uh, scholars on this and talked with, actually just talked uh, a few days ago with my colleague uh, who's of uh, Indian background, uh, Gulu Singh. And he said, we, you know, all of these say that in traditional Indian village life, it's said that one has a kind of a nemesis uh, uh, who sometimes the word would be used as my enemy. But it's not the enemy in the sense of uh, someone you want to hurt physically. It's like uh, Gulu said, well, you know, he has family. Well, maybe they have a business. And the main competitor in that line of business is another family, another person. They're my enemy. You know, I know them. In some ways, we may even be friendly, but they're my nemesis, right? That's the way it was used. And, and so... When we teach the retreat, we actually disappoint some people by uh, starting with someone on a scale of one to ten, where the we call the difficult person, and we say start with the five or six. You know, it could be someone at work with whom one has some, you know, some messiness or some conflict. You start there. You don't start with something that's way the extreme the number 10. You know, and if you're practicing and want to practice with someone challenging or difficult, it's better to practice with uh, someone more in the middle range. And maybe you work up to the ones that are the at the extreme, you know, like the, the nines or tens or the even beyond that. Yeah. How does that sound, Jane? Yeah, thank you. I think we can go to chest, please. I can hear you well, yeah. 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 Yeah, thanks, Chess. A really 
a really important question. Um, and actually, I, I'm not a, a licensed psychologist. Uh, I have had, uh, I have gone through training that is uh, uh, traditionally given for therapists. So I have had plenty of psychological training, but um, I'm not, I've never been a practicing psychologist, although I bring that material that I learned, you know, both, uh, I, I went through the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy, which was an intensive uh, two-year training. And then I've also been through a three-year trauma training. So, but, so those I have, but I'm not and never have been a practicing psychologist. Uh, so that being said, uh, I do teach and work with challenging emotions in my own teaching. They've been really important in my own practice to work with them. And I think you're correct, really, Chess, to say that sometimes meditation can be interpreted in a way that leads us to uh, think that we need to go beyond emotions to reach some kind of peacefulness or equanimity. And so we can sometimes have a subtle uh, wish to get rid of difficult emotions, right? I think that's what you're pointing to. How many people sometimes have interpreted meditation like that? That we want to just be balanced and peaceful and calm and that if difficult emotions come up, they're a problem. Anyone had that view sometimes? Yeah, I think that's sometimes uh, sometimes there. Um, and so, but actually, being with difficult emotions is a crucial part of our learning. And, you know, I think probably on Dharma Seed, I have uh, 45-minute talks that are 45-minute responses to your question, and perhaps series of 45-minute talks that are responses to your question. So I'll, I'll try to get to the basics, because again, it's been really crucial for me uh, early on in my practice, because I, I also initially in my practice thought that difficult emotions were a problem I wanted to get to be peaceful. I wanted to be blissful. I wanted to get to blissful states. And so naturally enough, in one of my early retreats, I had fear for the whole retreat. And I had to study fear for 10 days. Another retreat, anger was very, very strong. I've had other retreats where I had grief come up other retreats where I had a lot of uh, self-judgment. So I've been able to actually have sustained study of difficult emotions. So the starting point for practicing with difficult emotions is related to what I was talking about with Jane, is to clarify the level of intensity of the emotion and whether it's workable. We can bring mindfulness to difficult emotions when they're in the workable range. If they're at a nine or 10 level where they're too much, where we're totally stuck in the difficult emotions, then we can't really bring mindfulness to it. Then our aim in practice is actually to get rid of the emotions or get to a place where it's workable, get back to balance. So we might do something if we're in meditation, we could open the eyes, 
go to something pleasant, not stay with the emotion. We might take a walk, do something on a body level, do something physical, talk to a friend, talk to a teacher, and so forth. So that's, that's number one. Clarify whether the difficult emotion is workable. We're going to learn tremendously when we can be with a difficult emotion when it's in the workable range. When it's too much, we're not going to learn. It's just going to take us away. That's number one. When it's in the workable range, if we can, bring mindfulness to it. Name what's happening. Explore what it's like. What's it like in the body? So like when I, was, when I had uh, anger, I had an anger retreat for over a week. Anger most of the day, 14, 16 hours a day. Donald hanging out with anger in the workable range. And I was, my teacher was Jack Cornfield. He gave me good guidance. Explore what it's like in the body. Stay with it. A lot of our practice, most of what I did with anger wasn't so much to change it, to get insight. It was just to be present with anger. The learning comes from hanging out over time with a difficult emotion. The learning and the transformation and the shift comes from the being with it over time, not trying to get rid of it, not trying to work through it, just being with whatever's present. Those are, those are our basic instructions with mindfulness. And so it was really, really helpful. What's it like in the body? I got to be, okay, anger, okay, it's kind of like fire, kind of like intense there sometimes. Hang out with that. Be with that. I could be with that for five minutes. Study what it's like in the body. What's the emotional energy like of anger? Let me be with it. Let me explore it. Let me just hang out with it. Very key instruction. When the emotion is there and it changes, what does it change to? Very powerful for me when I would hang out with anger. Sometimes the anger would shift to sadness. You know, in that particular retreat, sort of what was precipitating my, uh, my anger was actually anger at the teachers. I was angry that we were being taught as if we were monks or nuns instead of having daily lives. And I was angry at that. I said, you know, you're treating us as in a way that maybe was appropriate for monks or nuns, but the teaching should be different. I was angry. And then I would feel, you know, because I had just come from, at that time, I had just come from living actually in the Midwest and really focusing on practice in daily life. And I felt like the retreat was a little bit too remote, not enough focused on the kind of lives we had. You know, and, and Jack said, I have some sympathy with your anger and what you're angry about, but you have a choice. You can either practice with your anger or go home. <laughs> and I, I chose to stay and work with it. But sometimes my anger would shift to sadness. Oh, I have these insights and no one's listening to me. Ah, you know, something like that. You know, like people aren't listening or people don't understand me. Kind of a sadness you know, which probably many of us have some version of that. Anyone, is that familiar to anyone? Yeah, they don't understand me. Sometimes there'd be sadness. 
Sometimes I would stay with the sadness and it would lead to actually, it would open up to love. That was interesting. You know, oh, I really care about our community and really, you know, um, being careful with how we work with, uh, you know, how we, how we practice. So there was a kind of love and care and warmth there. And that was really interesting for me to know that when I looked more deeply, there was love behind my anger, right? That was revealing. So these are ways to practice, just stay with the emotions. Now that didn't happen all the time, but staying with the emotions became really, really important, right? And then watching what the thoughts are, watching what the narrative is. That would be, you know, just noting what they are. So that, those would be some ways of just being mindful, mindful when the emotions are in the workable range. And it was similar when I've worked with fear or worked with grief, right? You know, the guideline that I worked with with grief, which I had for almost a, several weeks doing a personal retreat uh, after my mother died somewhat unexpectedly. There was a lot of grief. My, my work with the sadness was just be with it and see what gets in the way. And what would get in the way were typically narratives about what I should have done or something like that. You know, almost like self-judgments. I should have, you know, done this, known this, and so forth. So basically, mindfulness is a first strategy with difficult emotions when they're in the workable range. It's also helpful if we're hanging out with difficult emotions to bring in, if we can, some metta or compassion for self. You know, because we're going into difficult areas and painful areas, and we often need to have some balance when we're doing that a lot. And so I would say do things which are uplifting. It could be the metta practice, the compassion practice. Do things which bring joy. Do be with, if you're going a lot into difficult emotions, maybe at home, do things which are uplifting. Bring in uh, being with uh, the woods, with flowers. Be with what we sometimes call nature more fully. Do things which are uplifting and bring joy, music, dance, and so forth. And, you know, that's if we're going a lot into the difficult emotions, maybe at home. So, Chess, how does that sound for you? Any questions on that? On my, I gave a kind of a long response. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, but that... That's okay. No, I, I caught you by surprise. Yeah, yeah, if you're hanging out a lot with what's painful, you know, if you have, you know, if you have, uh, if you're being, 
if there's a lot of anger, sadness, and that's there a good part of the day, it's good to balance that by do something nourishing for yourself that brings joy. It could be meditative. It could be just something like, you know, something fun to do. It kind of, it, when we're hanging out a lot with difficult emotions, it's, we, we want to find uh, some degree of balance. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for the question very much. Uh, Viv, please. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. That's, that's really what I'm pointing to, that the integration is so important. And, you know, the, as it were, the critical comment I made was that that's not always very explicit in the teachings. We have to do that. We have to bring that together ourselves and explore what that's like, you know, that they can, the metta can seem different, you know, one way it manifests even in the language that we use, you know, the, you know, the, the metta is very personal. We're bringing metta, using the phrases to a particular person. And um, whereas often the wisdom teachings are more impersonal, right? And in a similar way, kind of like the metta's warm, the wisdom is a little more cool. The metta says, may this happen, you know, may you be happy, may you be healthy. And the wisdom, if you think of equanimity, the line I use, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are, right? That's where it can seem a little bit different, like hot and cold uh, and so forth. And so what I'm pointing to is the need to integrate. I think many of us do that. But I'm inviting that to be a little more explicit and just wondering if, even if we can develop teachings that bring these together a little more explicitly. And again, some of, some of the way it's taught now comes from uh, the text from the fifth century where metta is almost like consigned to be a concentration practice, not integrated with wisdom. That's the way it is in that text, which is the main influence on the teaching of metta in the West. So it's interesting, but yeah, um, that's, you know, really to be with uh, a difficult person, we want to see, okay, we want to bring all the factors of the Eightfold Path in, right? Okay, what's, how am I speaking? Can I bring a sense of warmth? Can I watch my own mind, see patterns, and so forth? So really crucial that what you brought in.
Okay, and Ritu, please. Am I pronouncing your name right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, how do we know our practice is working? An interesting question you bring up because <clears throat> this comes up sometimes in our um, teaching of metta. Actually, the main, the main way we know that it's working is we look to our own hearts because the method, even though we're wishing for this to be this way for another person, the real center of practice is our own hearts, not so much what happens with the other person. I'll come back to that, you know, what happens with the other person, but it's actually, it can sound like we're sending, we even use this language sometimes, we're sending metta to someone else. We're bringing metta to someone else, and how do we know that it gets there? How is the postal service working today, right? And, um, but actually the center of gravity for our metta is the transformation of our own hearts, not so much what happens with the other person. Uh, and so that's really what we focus on. Is my metta practice inclined towards, you know, I'm bringing it, I'm bringing warm thoughts to another person but the real emphasis is on me developing warmth, not so much what happens with the other person. Am I becoming warmer? I, the, the mechanism for becoming warmer is wishing well for someone else, but the real center of the practice is what happens in my own heart. In other words, am I becoming more kind? Am I becoming more loving? That's the center of the practice. That being said, I actually had a colleague who was working with NIH doing research on the effectiveness of people bringing something like metapractice and does it really influence other people's experience. And there's not a lot of conclusive evidence, but there are some research projects where they do show that when people know that people are bringing warm thoughts to them, when they know that it's happening, then it actually makes a difference. That's a little bit different from thinking that it's some kind of energy going out that touches them whether they know we're doing it or not, right? It's a little bit different than that. But there is some evidence that when people, basically it's when people feel connected with others. And this has been demonstrated a lot in terms of healthcare, you know, and, and medicine. When people know that they're connected with others, their health outcomes are improved. There is research on that. Yeah. That's getting a little bit of what you're we're getting at. So yeah. Yeah, thanks for you too. Okay. Do we have 
Yeah, maybe time for one short one if there's anyone else. Yeah, please, uh, Rachel, please. Yeah. There you go. Hmm. Yeah. 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 How to work with that when there's resistance to offering metta? Well, it's be, we start with, um, I think, two main responses. Number one, we start with where it's easiest and where it's flowing. And do you have people or beings towards whom it flows more easily? Okay, you have that. So basically, keep hanging out there. That's number one. And then number two, you know, after you've done that, so it's, it's good if you're bringing it to someone with whom there's some resistance to spend some considerable time, you know, depending on how much time you have. If you have 15 minutes for meta, spend 10 minutes where it's easy, and then maybe bring the last period of time to where, it's, where there's some resistance. And that's number one. Number two, when you start bringing it to that person, Go through, you know, it can be helpful maybe to have that technique that I described, the four-part technique where you bring the person to mind, maybe even bring the person to mind and think of them and think of them, you know, what's important for them or bring in some even, this isn't standard instruction, but could be take a minute and bring to mind, you know, um, what's maybe... Uh, uh, what you like about the person or what uh, uh, some positive qualities. Do that for a minute. That will doesn't guarantee anything, but it can help. And then next, when you start doing the metaphrases, uh, it's fine if you feel some resistance. Just keep on doing it. Right? Over time, the metta will work. When I did a long meta retreat, for example and I came to the difficult person who was a co-worker, it was a, kind of on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe a 7, I had some resistance, but I stayed with it. And I had a retreat, so I had a long time. <laughs> but I stayed with it by, the, by, you know, by, you know, a little while later, it was flowing. For me, a little while later meant, you know, several hours, <laughs> right, in a retreat. But the basic principle is, it's okay if there's resistance. Just stay with it. Do your practice, you know, and um, and work up to it. That's those, that's the guidance I would give. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Really, really helpful. Okay. Let's let's finish up now. What I'm going to invite is practicing of metta for the next week. How many would be like to do that? At least. 10 or 15 minutes a day. How many people willing to do that? Yeah. What I'll invite is that you practice at least 10 or 15 minutes a day, every day, and then try to bring the metta into daily life. 
in some of the ways I mentioned, maybe at meetings, uh, could ask, you know, a few times during the day, what's the kind thing to do? Do it when you're driving, taking a walk. Find one or two ways to bring it into daily life, okay? So we'll close by, just take a moment now, how could I bring metta into the next week? And then also, how might I, first is to keep the practice going, second is, how can I integrate it with wisdom? So ask those two questions right now, how might I practice metta in the next week? How might I integrate it with wisdom? Take a minute or two. And I'll be putting up the recording later today on Dharma Seed, so we'll have both the meditation period and the talk and discussion will be on Dharma Seed. You could listen to it. You could work with the guided meditation if you wish. That'll all, all be there on, on Dharma Seed. So we'll close with the dedication of merit. May our practice, may our time together be a benefit to us. May it be a benefit to those in our lives, our own circles, those in our own circles. And may our time together, our practice, be a benefit ultimately to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. And thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll do my goodbye. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. And if you want to unmute and say goodbye, feel free. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carlita. Till next time. Till next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.